Y'all know what this is? Yeah, I don't, I don't own gas-powered things like this. This is like a 50-50 mix. Is that what they call it? Like you mix oil and profane or something together and it works? Is that how this thing is? Listen, I'm holding this because, as you know, uh, we have a big property here. And we have a week coming up in July. I believe it's July 12th through the 17th where we're calling it kind of the yard work week, beautification of the building. And we want to encourage everybody to give about an hour or two that week to just help us clean up the building and get ready for camp. Yeah. You guys are about as excited as that as hiring an early childhood director. Good night. I didn't ask you to give the whole week. I said an hour, people. My Lord, help me, Jesus. This is an uphill climb today if you're standing up here in my shoes. So listen, I don't have a clue how to work this one, but I got one with a battery that you just clip the battery and pull the trigger and it works. So uh, our whole team, our staff, we're going to be out that week. We've got a couple big blocks scheduled. If you want to come in the afternoon, you want to come early in the morning, we've got some great volunteers that are organizing us to just spend some work beautifying the property outside. All right? So do me a favor on the back of your kid. Yeah, thank you. I feel like we should take a coffee break. You know, we got really good coffee out there. Just go get yourself a and put some extra sugar in it. I think this is what we need to do. Um, but uh, here's how you, it's easy, really easy to sign up. Pull out your Connect card real quick. No pressure. Pull it out now. Uh, and wave it at me. Wave it at me. I'm going to just keep, I'm going to wait until I see everybody. I'm not going to do that. Well, wait, because some of you are rebellious. You don't even have one. You're like, what are you talking about? Um, so listen, on the back of that Connect card, if you didn't get one, you can grab a program. They're on the tables as you came in. On the back of that Connect card, it says, send me information about the yard cleanup week. Check that box. Check that box and make sure your information is correct, your email address, phone number, and we'll get you the information so you can sign up for a time. And we'll have you all set, and we'll provide equipment if you need it, or you can bring your own. But we're going to pull weeds and mow lawns and do all kinds of fun stuff. Stay. Okay, very good. All right, so that's how you sign up for that. It's super easy. So thank you very much for being a part of that. We're in our series, Spirituality of Happiness. And I got to say, before we get started, how many of you were here last week or you tuned in last week? Raise your hand up nice and high. If you weren't able to, for whatever reason, uh, I'm sure it was a terrible one. But if you weren't able, no, if you weren't able to, you're out of town or just life happens, I get it. You got to listen to last week's talk. Dennis Anderson, oh my gosh, it was unbelievable. It was so good. Best message I've ever heard on the soul. It was so good. Um, I wrote it for him. He delivered it flawlessly. <laughs> delivered it flawlessly. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. He wrote the whole thing. It was awesome. Uh, so it was so good. I would encourage you to listen to that. So this series on happiness we're wrapping up today, our anchor verse comes from Psalm 1, 1 through 2. It says, happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. And we said the law of the Lord is a law of love, right? We know this through the revelation of the person of Jesus, that to to love God and to love your neighbor are basically the same thing. And that's what we meditate on. We fix our eyes on this idea of Jesus and living out this ethic of love and what that looks like. And so we want to wrap up today. We've been talking about hallmarks of happy people in the intersection of science and scripture and how they support one another when it comes to our well-being. And it's important that you know, in case you're kind of a guest and you're tuning in and we're talking about happiness, we're not talking about toxic positivity that says, in every circumstance, be happy. Put a big smile on your face. 
That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something deeper, like this idea of joy, like the, the, the kind of Bible word about strength for all circumstances, all situations, that ability to kind of walk through and press on, not necessarily even with a smile on your face. And so this week, we're going to wrap up. We want to talk about intentional relationships. Did y'all ever hear that song that uh, Josh and the team did first, but, uh, Stand By Me? It's a new tune. came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, Stand By <laughs> Stand by. Nin, uh, 1961, Stand By Me came out. 1961. Um, but that's kind of an iconic song about relationships and about like the need that we have in our lives for people who will stand by us. So let me ask you this question. Who in your life right now would you drop everything for if they experienced a crisis? Like you would even walk out of this church service if your phone beeped. And, and you had, like, there's people that even this experience you would leave to go help. Or perhaps it wouldn't matter what situation you were in in life, you get a, a message, a phone call, and they're experiencing a difficulty, a tragedy. You would, you would, in an instant, just, you'd pay for that airline ticket. You know it's taken off in six hours. You're going to put it on the credit card, whatever you got to do to get there to be with that person. Who in your life would you do that for? And then let me ask you this question, who in your life would drop everything and do that for you? Like, who could you call? Who would be the two or three people that when the sky falls down and you don't know what's happening, you would instinctively say, I got to call so-and-so because they'll be there for me. They will drop everything and come. Who would that be in your life? I have three guys that are in my life that uh, I would do that for, and I know that they would do that for me. And it wasn't always that way. There was a, I share this story a lot because I think it's important in terms of uh, what, like it's just an example of something positive I did in my life once. Uh, so I tell it all the time. There's not many of them. And uh, I, I, was, I, I went to a conference for pastors and, and you know, it's just basically a, a self-help for a bunch of people who have really, really serious like ego problems or, you know, self-esteem issues. And, and, and this one pastor, he'd been a pastor for many, many years, a guy named Gordon McDonald. He was in his 80s at the time. Uh, he, ta- he came up and talked to all these young pastors who were so hip and cool with their skinny jeans and moving lights and everything. And he said, uh, I probably couldn't even begin to tell you uh, anything to help you with growing a church right now. Like he says, I can't do that. But I think I might be able to tell you a little bit about your soul. And he began to give and share this talk on the importance of relationship and friendships. And at the end of that talk, I realized I don't have any friends. I have no friends. Like he shared about these guys that they go walk mountains all over. And I was like, nobody's going to walk a mountain with me when I'm old. Like I I just realized that every relationship in my life had an attachment. Like every relationship had some sort of a clause, right? So it was either I was their pastor, and so we kind of became friends through that, or we were coworkers, or, you know, whatever. But there was no like genuine just like, be around you to be around you kind of friendships. And so I called these three friends that I grew up with. We were all in each other's weddings, probably hadn't really intentionally talked regularly for a long time. And I just said, I have no friends. You guys want to still be friends? (laughs) And they all said, you know what? We don't have any friends either, (laughs) like in that sense. And so we made a commitment that we would get together once a year for the rest of our lives for about three or four days just to reconnect. And we've done that for the last four years. And I know that no matter what is going on in my life, whatever might happen, if I were to call them, they would drop everything and come. And what I've realized is all the research, and as I think about my own life, and as I get to talk with people, I feel really privileged that that's a part of my life, but it doesn't happen accidentally. 
And all the research tells us that it's very uncommon. In fact, there was a Pew Research study done in 2018. Now, remember, this is before the pandemic that said one in 10 Americans feel lonely or isolated. Those are your first fill-ins. I just lost half of you as you fill it in. <laughs> you, you didn't even hear the joke. You were so busy filling in your fill-ins. They feel lonely or isolated, not just part of the time, but all or most of the time. 10% of the population. And we might say, oh, one in 10, that's 10%, not just go through a moment of loneliness, but feel lonely or isolated all the time. And so there's this idea called social isolation. And social isolation typically refers to solitude that is unwanted or unhealthy. It's not the, like, I've got to disconnect, right? We all need a sense of solitude in our lives. If you're like me and you're kind of an introvert, you might need more of that, right? So for me, being in front of people is not a problem. Being in the middle of people is a serious issue for me, <laughs> Like, the last thing I want to go to is a dinner party, right? Like, that's just not my jam. I'm just, like, in the corner by myself, and then there's always a talking to in the car home. Why are you being so antisocial, right? It's usually my kids saying that to me. Dad, you embarrass me. No. Like, I'm not a concert person. I don't like to be in crowds, things like that. So I have to have, like, that solitude, that isolation. I like that. That re-energizes me. But all of us, no matter whether you're an extrovert or introvert, we need solitude. But when, when we, cross into a, we cross over the bridge into a space where I don't want to be alone, or I'm not alone, but I consistently feel alone, now I'm experiencing emotional isolation, right? This idea that I, I can't connect, I'm not connecting with people. I'm either unwilling to, or I don't have the uh, ability to kind of share what's going on. And that's the reason why, like, I could actually be in a crowd of people, you could be in a crowd of people, people you know really well and still feel very isolated. And social isolation comes into our lives through an asundry of different circumstances that we all can experience. Some of the very common ways that people find themselves in a space of isolation, right, in a space of feeling disconnected are through uh, like intimate partner violence. There's some measure of abuse and so there's this hiding and there's, I don't know where to turn and, and there's this fear and there's a sense of like, what would people think? Loss of a loved one can send us into a space of isolation, a feeling that no one understands. Mental health concerns, anxiety, and depression. Oftentimes there's these terrible stigmas that come with those things that then push us into a space where we just feel alone. If you live in a remote location, right, you live kind of isolated from people. Physical impairments, physical disabilities oftentimes will set us into a space where we can't connect physically, we can't be in a space. And if there's not inclusion, if there's not uh, uh, an intentional effort, oftentimes, and this happens a lot in the church world, we just aren't accessible, right? Because there's limitations. Social media, interestingly enough, the science is telling us that social media is one of the major contributors to isolation. Isn't that crazy? But we've replaced, right, like personal connection with uh, connection via like Facebook and TikTok and all these things. And everybody my age is like, amen, put the phone down. Everybody my kid's age is like, you're an idiot, dad. I have to have more friends than you'll ever have, you know. There's a little disconnect in the generations on that one. But what the science is showing is that there really isn't that type of deep connective tissue that happens through time spent with one another. Unemployment right? Unemployment produces that. There's a shame, a stigma that can come along with that. And when you think about the pandemic and what we've gone through, it's just kind of like a seedbed that's just perfect for a sense of isolation. And the science of happiness, it says this, that basically 
the key factor in a person being happy, the key factor for a person having kind of a solid understanding of themselves, that strength, is really meaningful relationships. Investment into meaningful relationships, right? Yet we as a country, we as a people, we seem to be moving into less and less intimacy with people. Yet the science says this is the most important aspect, like that connectivity. There was a, a research project that was done uh, at the University of Illinois. And uh, at the University of Illinois, they, they, they gave all the students a survey, a happiness survey. And then they took the 10% of the students that scored the highest, right? And they just kind of looked at their scores and said, what do they have in common? And what they found was the most salient characteristics shared by students who were very happy, and they showed the fewest signs of depression was their strong ties to friends and family and their commitment to spending time with them. Right, so the science tells us this, and it's fascinating because Scripture, if you've been around church for a long time, you're like, well, I don't need it. I mean, there's all kinds of wisdom in Scripture around the importance of relationships. In fact, Scripture tells us that there is a danger in isolation. There is a danger of aloneness, and there is a power in companionship. There's this book in the Old Testament, if you're new to Bible study, it's called Ecclesiastes. Maybe you've heard of this book if you've been around church or a Bible for a while. If you're new to Bible study, this is a, a, le it's, it's a little book in the, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. It's a part of what is classically known as wisdom literature. I think of the whole Bible as wisdom literature in a sense, but this is a classically known as wisdom literature. And it's all these sayings, and it's basically the journey of a teacher or a gatherer is kind of what the, the word means, the Hebrew name for it. And and, uh, and it's just kind of like their journey. And it is the biggest bummer of a book ever. Like totally, like it will send you into like a depression spiral if you read this out of context. Because it is just like, oh yeah, this doesn't work in life and this doesn't work in life. And you think this will make you happy. It's not going to make you happy. Nothing makes you happy. We're all going to die. <laughs> so at the end of the day, just enjoy God and live. <laughs> I, that's, the, that's literally what the book is, right? But there's a lot of truth in the book. But it's really this person's journey kind of walk about into purpose and meaning and trying to find it in all of these things that classically the world would say is. Now, this book was compiled and written, you should know, in like the third century. So somewhere between two to 300 years before Jesus walked the earth, right? And during that time frame, the Israelites, Jerusalem, the Israelite nation, they were under the control of the Egyptians who were under the control of the Greeks. And, and the, like, this group of people, right, the Hellenistic kings of Egypt, one thing they were really good at was ruthless exploitation of people and land. And, and this was going on for years and years and years and years. So you have to understand, there's no kind of prophetic voice in the nation. And so they're kind of going through the motions of temple worship, of living a religious life, but we have no kind of record, really, of a prophetic voice of God speaking during this time. So there's this sense of abandonment. Where is God? What's it all about? That's when this is being put together. And so there's a chapter in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. It says this. This is the, the gatherer of information, the person who's trying to figure out how do you find meaning and purpose in life. It says, again, I saw this vanity under the sun. Key word for this book is vanity. Vanity of vanities, worthless. It's all worthless. It's all meaningless. Those all alone with no companion, with neither child nor sibling, with no end to their toil and no satisfaction from riches. This, this is a vanity of vanities. Like, you go through life, you toil, you labor, but you have no sibling, you have no children, you have no spouse, you have no one to share that with. 
And the writer asks the question, well, whom do I toil and deprive myself of good things then? This is also, it's a vanity and bad business. He says, well, why am I doing this? If I have no one to share it with, it's useless. And then goes on and says, two are better than one. They get a good return, a good wage for their toil. If the one falls, the other will help the fallen one. But woe to the solitary person. If that one should fall, there's no one to help. What are they going to do? So also, if two sleep together, they keep each other warm. How can one alone keep warm? Where one alone may be overcome, two together can resist. A three-ply cord is not easily broken. So this kind of famous passage in this really downer of a book, it says, listen, it is a serious problem in life to go through your whole life and not have anyone to share your stuff with, to not have anyone to be present with it, that you're laboring and toiling for a next generation if there is no one to take that. And then he goes on and says, you, you're so much better off. Now, here's the thing. Most of us don't walk down the street and have to worry about being overtaken by a bandit, right? We don't have to say, God, I need somebody to walk with me. Now, some places that is the case and some people they do. There's no doubt. But my neighborhood, I don't have to, right? I just don't. And there's all kinds of reasons and privilege for that. But what all of us do have to be aware of is that we can all be easily overwhelmed and overcome by the voices in our heads. We can all be overwhelmed by the bandits that come in and tell us lies about our personhood, about our experiences, about who we are, about our value in this world. And, and that's where I think two and three become so important because we can actually process and resist that. And what's interesting is that Jesus himself modeled the power of meaningful relationships. Like, so Jesus, who as a Christian, I believe, and for those of you that would call yourselves Christians or followers of Jesus, we traditionally believe that in some mysterious way, Jesus is the manifesta manifestation of God for us in this world. That when we want to understand the heart of God, when we want to understand what God is all about, we look to the life of Jesus. And Jesus modeled the power of companionship and relationships. Jesus didn't walk this earth by himself. In fact, Jesus had three very close friends, Peter, James, and John. James and John are also called the sons of Zebedee. And it's fascinating that we have three, at least three experiences that were given through the gospel writers that, that Jesus took these three with him only, excluded the other nine total bummer if you're the other nine disciples, right? Or the 70 or however many disciples there were. And we have these major moments in the life of Jesus that Jesus only shared with these three, which lends us to believe that Jesus had a unique relationship with these three, and there was no problem with that. Jesus didn't feel like that was, you know, in some way wrong or that in some way I was, he was slight. He just knew these are three people that I can trust. These are three people that are part of my life. So we have the transfiguration, this moment where uh, we get this beautiful story in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus goes up onto a mountain and he's transfigured. His face looks different. There's a couple new people there with him that nobody ever seen, you know, it's kind of a wild experience. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up this high mountain apart by themselves. So they're by themselves, just the three. And this experience happens. And then the, the three, it's great. Like he brings the three that they're probably not the brightest of the three because they don't know what to do. Peter's like, let's build tents and let's stay. No, I'm not going to do that. And then you have this experience of the raising of Jairus' daughter. It's an actual like, story of bringing someone back to life. Jairus was a synagogue leader in one of the towns that Jesus and all of his followers were visiting and doing ministry at. And they came to Jesus to have Jesus come. The daughter was sick. She ends up dying. Jesus goes. 
It says when he arrived at the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. Good call, right? And, when he, and so he has this experience. He heals the daughter, but the only people to see and bear witness to this are Peter, James, and John. Now, if you're the other disciples, you are really ticked off at this point, right? You, like, you're not hanging out with Peter, James, and John. He's like, I need a minute. I can't believe you got to see that, and I did it, right? And then we have the, probably one of the most beautiful spaces where I think it gives us a clue as to the relationship that Jesus had with these three. And that's the prayer in the garden as it's recorded in Matthew. Matthew chapter 26 uh, this is the night that Jesus would be betrayed. It's part of his passion, his crucifixion. It says that he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he, the disciples that are all with him says, you guys stay here. I'm going to go over and pray. But he took along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to feel sorrow and distress. Sorrow and distress. And he says to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and keep watch with me. See, I think this is really beautiful because I think this is Jesus saying, I'm scared, please don't leave me alone. And the truth is, a lot of us, we don't want to think of Jesus like that. We have a hard time imagining that Jesus struggled. We have a hard time imagining that Jesus maybe was wrong about the weather the next day. <laughs> we have a hard time imagining that Jesus was human because we have, we've missed that part of it. But and we think that somehow being wrong or struggling is a sin. We think that being alone or afraid is a sin. Jesus experienced all of these emotions, all of them. And I love that Jesus has these three that he can be vulnerable with and say, I'm scared, please don't leave me. And of course, they promptly fall asleep. I'm scared, that's beautiful. And that idea of powerful and meaningful relationships it really was a hallmark of the first Christian communities that would develop. They were deeply relational. In fact, when the relationships broke down, we have these really indicting and scathing kind of remarks, particularly from Paul. So the Apostle Paul, you know, he would travel and start these Christian communities up, and then they'd run into problems, and he'd write letters back, and they were always relational difficulties. There were always these issues with just treating one another kindly. There was one community that Paul actually didn't start in a town called Colossae, and we have a letter called Colossians that was written uh, perhaps by Paul. The scholars are really kind of sharply divided as to whether Paul wrote this letter or it was a disciple of Paul's, but it's written in Paul's name. And he, never, he didn't actually found it. And when he writes the letter, he hadn't been there. But there was a guy named Epaphras who was a follower of Jesus who started this community. It seems that Epaphras reached out to Paul uh, to say, hey, I've got this problem. And the community was like really caught up in kind of angelology and things like that. And so Paul writes this kind of letter back in response or the disciple of Paul. And this is what it says. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, because you've experienced God's love, because that's transformed you, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are relational words, right? Compassion is extended to someone. Humility is, is, is lived out for the benefit of others, right? Gentleness is given towards another person, patience. And then it says, bear with each other and forgive one another. You know if you have a friendship that has lasted at any length of time, a relationship in a family, that you have had to learn how to do this, to bear with one another. If you've been married for longer than, say, a week, <laughs> right? 
You've been married a little while. You know you can't do that if you don't learn to bear with each other. And I think bearing with each other and forgiving one another is just recognizing that like, oh yeah, they're not perfect. And I don't need them to come say they're sorry. I don't need them to accept it. I just bear with it because I need people to bear with me. These are like the hallmarks of relationships. Forgive it. If any of you has a grievance against them, so you, you have a problem, just bear with them. And then it says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In other words, model what you've experienced. You have been, and how has God forgiven you, by the way? Like, forgiven. <laughs> you've said nothing. You've done nothing. You haven't even asked for it. You just live in a state of perpetual forgiveness because that's what perfect love is. Perfect love has full understanding, and so there's forgiveness that comes with full understanding, and that's how God and, and the Lord forgives. Now, whether you live in that forgiveness, whether you accept that, whether you understand and believe with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that this is God, that's a totally different story. But God's forgiveness is completely one-sided. It's present. It's there. And so you forgive the same way. And over all these virtues, compassion, all that stuff, Right? Put on love. Put on love. That's what binds them all together in perfect unity. So here's what I don't want you to miss today. As you come in here and you've hoped that there's something to take home with you. <laughs> like, don't miss this. That meaningful relationships are an opportunity to mediate God's love in our lives. To mediate God's love, to give it and to receive it. That when we actually take on this disposition towards people, that forgiveness, that grace. We are actually experiencing God. We're experiencing divine love. And so we need these people in our lives because people who are messed up teach us how to be like God. <laughs> people who hurt us teach me how to live like God. They teach me how to honor the way God honors. They teach me to love the way God loves. They call me always into what we call a cruciform life a life that is marked by a death to self so that when you produce pain, you produce harm, you produce evil in my life, I receive that and I return it as love. That's a cruciform life. That's bearing your cross, Jesus said. If anyone will come after me, let them take up their cross and follow me. We think that has to do with like, like moral. No, like Jesus hung on the cross, and the evangelists tell us they put in Jesus' mouth, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What does Jesus do? He takes all the violence of the world and returns it, forgiveness, grace, love, without any request for it. That's a really healthy soul, right? That's an amazing reality. But that's what these relationships teach us to do, and we start by doing it with people we like, Right? So how do we do this? How do we begin to have these meaningful relationships? Well, you choose a handful of people to do this with. You don't choose everybody. You just choose a handful of people and you begin to develop this because it's easier to forgive people you like, <laughs> that you know they didn't intentionally hurt you. You, can, you don't fill in the gaps of pain with these like really terrible stories because you know their heart. So you start with a few people, just a handful of people. And here's, I want to give you some questions to think about as you discern who's your inner circle. Who are those three or four people that you would, that you want to develop a relationship with so that you would drop everything and be with in their time of need? You'd risk everything. If your boss told you, if you leave right now in the middle of this project, you will lose your job. And you say, well, you know what? My friend is just going through this. Sorry. God will provide another job. I've got to go be with him. Right? Whatever it might be. So here's some questions, right? First one is this. 
Do you feel safe? Do you feel safe to reveal personal issues and feelings with this person? So if you don't feel safe, like don't do it, right? So there is a measure of like you got to get to know somebody. So do you feel safe? Because you cannot have, uh, you cannot have intimacy without like sharing and, and self-disclosure, right? Remember Jesus in the garden, right? I'm scared. Please don't leave. I'm scared, please. Like, that, that's a measure of self-disclosure. And so the religious word for the social science word of self-disclosure is confession. Confession. Now everybody is like, some of you is like freaked out. Confession. Oh, that's sin again. I don't want to talk about that. So let's, let's, can we have a healthy understanding of the word confession, right? Confession is simply self-disclosure with people you love. <laughs> people you know that will mirror back God's love. That no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they are going to mirror back God's grace and God's love into your life. That's what confession is. Oftentimes, confession means I have to talk with somebody about a stupid thing that I did that hurt someone, about something I did that hurt myself. The Bible word for that is sin, by the way. It's not a dirty word. It's not a terrible word. It's been misused to control people and manipulate people. But there's healing that comes when we confess one to another. That's what James 5.16 says. Now, James, probably when he wrote it, he was attaching it to real, like, physical, like, if you're sick, it's probably a sin in your life. You go and have the elders pray for you, confess your sin, and then you'll get better, okay? Pre-enlightenment mind, believe that's how the world works, okay? In Jesus, through the years, we know you don't have cancer because you've sinned, right? You don't have a cold because you've sinned. But we do know that when we are holding things in, whether it's something we've done or whether it's something that has been done to us that's produced pain, when we hold that in, there is a sickening that can take place in our psyche. And you all have experiences. Like you, you, you talk with somebody, finally you're like, oh, I feel so much better. You ever said that? Anybody ever said that? This is me bringing you back in because I feel like I'm boring you. I'm having you raise your hand to move the blood flow a little bit, you know. Really don't care if you raise your hand or not. I just want you back with me, right? little trick. But it does. So James says, Pray, you pray for one another, confess one to another. So we sit down. Jesus, hold on to your seats, confessed in the garden. I'm scared. That's a type of confession, right? There's absolutely, it's a beautiful, wonderful, important thing that we do, right? That confession. Next question. Am I committed to supportive communication practices with this person? Now, this is an internal one, right? So what do I believe about this person? Will they mirror back God's love? Will they mirror back unconditional acceptance of me? Now I have to ask the question, am I willing to do what's called supportive communication, which means I just listen. Am I willing to just listen with no purpose other than understanding? I just want to understand your world, the way you've experienced it. I'm not going to offer any judgment. I just want to understand your perspective. I'm going to listen carefully because that tells someone that I care for you, that I respect you, that I support you, that I'm with you. I'm going to listen without any judgment. And when I do that, when I listen without any judgment, I'm signaling something to a person. I'm willing to change. I'm willing to be shaped by your experiences. I'm willing to say your experience of the world, your perspective, the things you've done, the things that have happened to you, that those are real and those are genuine and they can inform me and they can actually shape my worldview. It says I'm vulnerable to influence. And so I learned to listen. 
And as we demonstrate that openness, these relationships get stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think you also want to make sure that this person that you feel comfortable, are they willing to do the same thing back? And then here's the last one. This is the big question. Can I give this per- per- person permission to speak difficult truths into my life? Am I willing to look at this person and say, Timmy, I need you to tell me when I'm being the fool. I need you to tell me when my behavior in your opinion, because I value it, is harming my marriage. But I'm giving you permission to do that. So here's the opposite. If no one has given you permission to do that, keep it to yourself. One of the problems we as Christians do is we answer questions nobody's asking. Right? Right? All the time. We're all the time asking questions nobody asks of us. So, just But you need to have people in your life that you give that permission to because one, you know that they're trustworthy. You know that they listen without judgment. You know that they mirror about God's love and acceptance. They're going to accept you no matter what foolishness you do. But that doesn't mean you want to swim around in your foolishness. Right? Maybe. I don't know. I don't want to. I would be ticked off if my closest friends just kind of let me walk around with spinach in my teeth, emotionally speaking. Right? Like I'm walking around with my fly down and they're not saying anything to me. Give me a break. Like I want people in my life who I trust that they're not going to think anything differently because of the mistake that I've made or because of the behavior I'm exhibiting, but I want them to love me enough and I trust them enough when they say, Ryan, the way you just spoke to your kids, that's not going to produce good fruit in their life. Now, I don't want them to say that in front of my kids because <laughs> that gives my kids ammunition that they don't need. Right? I'm just kidding. But we need those people in our life. And I need to give that person, and I need to be that in someone's life. And as we do this, as we invest ourselves intentionally in these relationships, that's the only way that this will happen, we're going to learn something really powerful that can actually make this world a better place, that will bring, what we say, the glory of God into this world through my life, is we'll learn the power of selflessness. Selflessness. I don't know about you, but I think our world could use a little bit of selflessness. I think my life could use a little bit of selflessness. Like I need to have those people that I resolutely say, I will die to self for you. I will die to self for you. No matter how inconvenient it is, I need to have those people in my life that I've entered into that relationship because that teaches me so much about God and about the vocation of the Christian life in this world. So I'll come back to the question that I started with. Who is it in your life that you would drop everything for? Who is it in your life that has given you permission to speak difficult truths? Who is it in your life that you trust to share personal information? Who is it in your life that just listens without any judgment and just reflects back God's love? I have a friend who some of you have met. He came and spoke a couple years ago. Ricky, I don't know if you remember Ricky. He's like 6'8", played in the NFL. It's kind of hard to forget. And uh, Ricky's going to hopefully be back with us this coming February for Football Sunday again. But Ricky has this relationship with these three people, and he taught me a lot about what it really does mean to live this out. And I remember one time I was there in D.C. with Ricky and, and Chris, the, these two brothers that just, they just kind of, they're not brothers like physically, but they are spiritually, and they just kind of walk in life together. And they were just sharing with me about like the commitment that they've made to one another as a relationship. And they said, um, 
And I'll never forget this. They said, we're not accountability partners. Anybody ever heard that phrase, accountability partners? You ever heard of that phrase? My, my, my kind of impression is stop using it. It's kind of a useless phrase. Because if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I don't care how much you try to hold me accountable to not do something. Like if I'm going to eat the cookie, I'm going to eat the cookie. I'm going to find some way to do it, right? <laughs> like that's just the truth. Whatever your cookie is, you know, you, you'll do it no matter what. Uh, we can support one of it, just that accountability thing. I don't know that works. But he said, well, we're not, I, don't, I don't hold Chris. Hey, Chris doesn't hold me. We don't do that. Because if, they're, if he's here to hold me accountable, when I'm unaccountable, when I go and do this in hiding, I'm not going to want to go to Chris and talk about it uh, because I'm going to be ashamed like I failed Chris. He says, all I'm supposed to do is make sure Chris knows that I love him no matter what. No matter what. No matter what, I love you. I love you. Who do you have in your life that knows that about you? No matter what, I love you. Not because I have to, but because I choose to. Because I choose to. And one thing I hope all of us know, and what you'll live into, is that you were loved like that by God. That that is God. And that transforms us. And when we give that away, we become some of the happiest people on the planet. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for this series that we've been exploring, this idea of happiness, of blessed life that goes beyond our circumstances. And I thank you, God, that we're in partnership with you, that there are things that we can do in our lives to produce good fruit, the fruit of happiness. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to each of us here today as it relates to relationships. Bring to our minds and bring to our hearts those people that you've begun to knit us together like that cord of three that are not easily broken. And then give us the initiative and the drive to invest in them. To know that they don't happen accidentally, but they happen intentionally with purpose. And Lord, whether those that inner circle are as close as Peter, James, and John were to you, Jesus, that they were right there with you, or whether they're like my scenario where we live all over the country, that these relationships can be facilitated with effort and they are important for us. So put a desire in us to do this. And Lord, I do pray specifically for those in the room who it is difficult to share. And I think, you know, God kind of anecdotally, we always kind of joke around about men having a difficult time sharing, but it does seem to be somewhat true that a greater percentage of those of us that really do struggle with the idea of opening up, we are men. And may we model our lives after you, Jesus, that was vulnerable. And you had those people that you said, I'm scared, don't leave me. May all of us have those in our lives. And may we thank you for it. And may we thank you for modeling that kind of love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do me a favor, grab your Connect card, your offering envelope. If you're in the room, if you're online, you can open up a new window. Fill that out, that Connect card. Just put your name, email address. On the back, there's a section that says, what's God inviting you into today? 
Um, and uh, maybe there's a couple of things in there. If you want to be a part of the yard cleanup, that would be awesome. If you're in the room, you can drop your offering envelope in one of the orange kiosks. If you're online, you can click the button. Or if you're in the room, you can text, do whatever. I want to thank everybody for giving generously. If you're not a part of the Peace is Worth It initiative, it's not too late to fill out that little card that's in that program or online. And we'd love for you to be a part of that as well. All right? Okay. Do me a favor. Stand up. Have a blessing for you. Have a blessing for you. Before I say the blessing, though, uh, we're getting ready to change out for our new series, which is launching next week, which is called Campfire Stories. And we're going to be looking at the power of stories. And we're going to be looking at different stories that we can relate to and that can kind of speak to us and give us wisdom. And so uh, part of that is there's a set change and our memorial is going to go away. But we have these red rocks on here. There's, I think, around 250 of them. And they represent uh, one life in Larimer County uh, that died during covid and I want to encourage you as a family, would you take a red rock home with you today? And will you set it in your garden or will you set it uh, on a bookshelf? And will you just use that every time you see it as a reminder to pray for people whose lives have been deeply affected by COVID through the loss of someone or something? And so if you all would take a red rock home and do that, I think that would be a great way for us to continue on this good habit of happy people to remember well. And so you can grab one of those. Or if you put a name on a rock, uh, you're welcome to take that home with you as well. And don't, if you grab a rock that has a name on it, that's wonderful. It's fine. You don't need to know who they are to be praying for them as well. All right. So if you'll do that, that would be awesome. Okay. Do me a favor. Extend your arms. I'm going to put this rock down because I don't have that many muscles. <laughs> that's going to get old real quick holding that rock up. So take in a nice deep breath. Close your eyes for me. Breathe in nice and deep. May God bless you and keep you. May love bring hope and joy to you through your friends this week. And may you find the courage to develop strong relationships with a handful of people that you trust to love you and care for you in the most selfless ways. And may you prioritize the people that mediate God's love into your life. And may you find the freedom in confession and self-disclosure with this inner circle. And as you walk through this week, may you find in the living spirit of Jesus a friend who sticks closer than a sibling. And may you know that you truly are a friend of God. Amen. Happy Fourth of July, everybody.